Okay, so first I want to talk to you about elephants. Now, I read a fascinating National Geographic article recently about the empathy of ele elephants. And they found that Asian elephants, um, when they sense that their friend is in distress, they'll come close and caress the trunk with their trunk and make chirping sounds, which are like empathetic, comforting sounds. So elephants can sense the emotions of their friends and come close to comfort. And animal behaviorists have found that quite a few different types of animals um, have the impulse to comfort each other, which I think is beautiful. Of course, we know that human beings are wired to comfort one another in distress also. These are my friends, Matt and Josie Minicus and Eliza, and they're good friends of the Asterix as well. And I have been so impressed with Matt and Josie as parents and their desire to comfort Eliza. Eliza, when she was born, she was sick for a while and they were so patient, so comforting of her. Um, but I spent Christmas with them in 2019 and Eliza was taking a nap upstairs and we were talking downstairs and we heard this shriek of terror come from upstairs. And um, Josie jumped out of her chair and sprinted upstairs and Matt's right behind her. They're going to comfort Eliza. And what had been happening was she was having these um, unexplainable night terrors. Sometimes when she was sleep, would sleep, she would wake up just absolutely terrified. So they comforted her and then they came downstairs and they were explaining to me how difficult it was to watch their little girl suffering and how they wanted so much to be able to comfort her and they didn't want her to feel afraid. So we see in nature and animals and human beings, this impulse to comfort. And I believe that this is just an echo of God's heart because the Bible actually calls God the God of all comfort. The apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So central to Paul's theology, to the theology of the apostles, was that they had a message of comfort to share because God is a God of comfort. When I think about the uh, way that the gospel spread so rapidly among the early believers, um, it brings up a lot of questions. Like they were facing so much adversity, facing persecution, and yet it continued to spread so rapidly. And I believe that one of the main reasons why was because it was such a comforting message because it reached people's hearts right where they needed it the most. So you see that the apostles, that the early believers preached comfort in Christ's incarnation, comfort in Christ's crucifixion, comfort in Christ's resurrection, comfort in Christ's ascension, and comfort in Christ's promise of recreation. Whenever they spread the message of Christ, it was incredibly comforting because that's what the gospel is. So today, um, we're going to take a brief look at these key events in the life and ministry of Christ, asking the question specifically, how can we find comfort in our everyday lives, our everyday experiences from um, these very special events? And we'll spend the most time talking about the resurrection because this is Easter, but I just wanna do a brief overview of these events. And we'll start, of course, with the incarnation. What is the comfort of the incarnation? Well. 
What do you guys think would be the opposite of the incarnation? What would be a word you might think of to describe the opposite of the incarnation? Reincarnation. Anybody? Separation. Separation? That's a great one. Anybody else? Abandonment. Abandonment. Yeah, exactly. So I, the word I thought of is it's, very similar in meaning is isolation. And all of us have experienced this past year, isolation in a way that we never really thought would happen, right? We have learned a bit about what isolation means because of the pandemic. And we know that this has been very difficult for a lot of people, for a lot of people's mental health um, to be separated from one another. So I think it's really interesting to me to watch how different people have found creative ways to come close to one another. Um, There's been Zoom Bible studies and game nights and, you know, um, weddings and bridal showers and all kinds of events on Zoom. So we see um, people try to find ways to be with one another, despite what they're facing. So the next picture shows some people, you know, they came even closer while still staying safe. Um, People would visit their family members through a window Um, I know I visited a family member through a window. So you see here the human impulse to come close. And I love these pictures I found online of people who found a creative way to give a pandemic hug by putting up like soft plastic and hugging their loved one through the plastic. Um, And that just comes a level closer. But some of the heroes of the pandemic came so close that they ended up giving their lives. Um, This is a physician who was in Wuhan, who was actually supposed to be on his wedding and honeymoon, but chose to take care of his COVID patients instead, and he ended up passing away. When I think of him and the other healthcare professionals that took so many risks in order to help others, in order to be with their patients in their time of need, I think of the spirit of the incarnation, of Christ's desire to come close. We're told in Matthew 123, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God wants to be close to us. God doesn't like it when when he's separated from us. And he, through the incarnation, found a very creative way to come as close as possible. But we know that there was no risk-free way to come close, right? There wasn't any personal protective equipment that Jesus could wear in order to come close to us and still be okay. And like the physician we just saw, Jesus chose to come close anyway. So I believe that today God wants to comfort us with an ongoing sense of his compassionate presence. So many people feel lonely. Um, I heard in January, there was a big survey, January of 2020, rather, so this is before the pandemic started, where three in five American adults surveyed said that they felt lonely. And can you imagine, you know, since the pandemic, how much more loneliness there is? So a lot of people feel lonely, but through the incarnation, we can know day in, day out, no matter what we're experiencing, no matter how lonely we feel, no matter how misunderstood we feel, that we always have have a God that's with us. We always have a God that's close. But the incarnation has a deeper meaning than just um, the proximity of God. It also speaks to the value 
that he places on each one of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in The Cost of Discipleship, in the incarnation, the whole human race recovers the dignity of the image of God. Henceforth, any attack, even on the least of men, is an attack on Christ who took the form of man. So he's saying, you know, after the fall, in a, in a big way that the dignity of man went down, you know, the onlooking universe is realizing how um, humanity has been marred. But God, through the incarnation, Christ showed that he valued his creation. He valued humankind more than ever. And I believe that through the message of the incarnation, that God wants to comfort us with an awareness of our infinite value. It's very easy as human beings in our struggle for identity and our struggle to feel valued to find our sense of value in other things like are people approving of me? Does the person I like like me? Um, am I performing well at work? How do I feel about my appearance? How many Instagram followers do I have? There's so many different human metrics by which we me measure value. But all of these things can change so easily. And we can get into these cycles of pride when we feel like we're measuring up to what we think we're supposed to, or shame when other people are disappointed in us or when we mess up. But God wants us to have um, a stability in our sense of value. And I believe that as we internalize um, the value that he's placed on us, that we can find that stability. So that's the comfort of the incarnation. What is the comfort of the crucifixion? Well, I think the main message of the crucifixion is forgiveness. If I were to pick a word, you could pick a lot of different words. So what's the opposite of forgiveness. What word comes to your mind when you think? Condemnation. Yeah. Anything else? Condemnation, bitterness, all of those things. Yeah, I had put condemnation. There is someone um, in history who experienced a huge amount of condemnation. His name is Martin Luther. And Martin Luther had a very, very sensitive conscience. He was a German monk. And he so much wanted to have God's acceptance. He so much wanted to have peace with God. Um, but he thought that the way to do that was to be a perfect monk. So he would um, sleep on the floor without a blanket, the cold stone floor. He would fast. He lost a bunch of weight. He would like self-flagellate. And he would spend, uh, I think, six hours a day sometimes in confession. And he confessed so much that the priest got annoyed, like, stop, stop coming to me. This is boring. Don't come back until you have something more interesting to say. Um, so Martin Luther was someone who had a strong sense of condemnation, but wanted peace with God. And in the year 1510, Martin Luther went to this site, uh, which I got to go to about 10 years ago. This is the Scala Sancta in Rome. And Scala Sancta means the Holy Stairs. And in Catholic tradition, so this is the inside of the building here, um, it's believed that this staircase was miraculously transported from Jerusalem to Rome, and that this is the staircase that um, Jesus ascended before standing before Pilate um, for that trial before his crucifixion. So um, still today, an indulgence is offered for people that will climb up these stairs on their knees and say a special prayer. Um, there's a belief that they will uh, be forgiven of sins from this work. I did that. You've climbed up it? I climbed up it on my knees. 
Yeah. Just because it was the only way to get in there. So all the priests and nuns were all around me and my whole tour group thought I was insane, but I wanted to get in there. Well, David has climbed up the stairs. Um, so. And I prayed on every prayer that the people around me would understand the great truth of justification by faith. Nice, nice. I wonder how many Protestants have climbed up the stairs. Um, so Martin Luther was visiting Rome. He's climbing up these stairs on his knees. He's saying the Lord's prayer on every step. And as he was climbing up, he had one of the pivotal moments um, that influenced his understanding of the gospel. And on his mind was impressed a phrase. And that is the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And that is taken from Romans chapter one. We'll start in verse 16. Paul wrote, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And we're told that Martin Luther realized that the very act of climbing up the stairs um, was contradicting the power of the gospel. And he got up and he left that place. And soon, it wasn't long after that, before he began proclaiming the message of righteousness by faith. So Martin Luther found comfort in the message of the crucifixion, that there was a righteousness outside of himself that he could trust in to have acceptance with God. I love this passage from Isaiah, which speaks about the comfort that God wants um, to give us when we feel weighed down by a sense of condemnation, by a sense of our failure. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What a comforting message of God's grace. And God wants to comfort us with this in those moments where we feel regret, you know, whether it's moral regret or just regret about different choices when we've made in life, when we feel weighed down with a sense of the mistakes we've made, maybe the ways that we've hurt others, the when we realize that we're not quite the people that we want to be, God wants to speak in and let us know that he loves us um, in spite of our sinfulness and that his grace is enough to cover our sins. So there is radical comfort that we can find in the crucifixion. What is the comfort of the resurrection? We'll spend the most time on this one because it's Easter weekend. But what is the word that comes to mind when you think of the opposite of the resurrection? Death, right? Death is all there would be without a resurrection. And death is what many people believe is all there is to look forward to after this life. In fact, atheists and skeptics will mock the idea of the resurrection, claiming that it's more like a fairy tale. This is a quote by Bryce Hammond. He writes, a literal physical resurrection flies in the face of everything we've learned and know about life and death, biology, the ecosystem, nature, etc." Organisms that die do not come back to life, believing that they do, or at least that Jesus did, create such a conflict of reason that it shatters all belief in any kind of consistent reality. It is things like this that make religion, and particularly Christianity in this case, look absurd. Richard Dawkins, one of the most prominent atheist thinkers, um, also mocks the resurrection and even goes as far to insult people that choose to believe in it. 
He says the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles, all are freely used for religious propaganda, and they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. So there's this you know, prevailing belief among people who don't believe in the inspiration of scripture um, or who don't believe in God that the resurrection is a myth, it's a fairy tale, and people who choose to believe it are anti-intellectual and naive and childlike. Well, Lee Strobel also used to have this perspective. He worked for the Chicago Tribune, and he was investigative, an investigative journalist. And investigative journalists are critical thinkers, right? They want to have evidence to back up what they believe. Well, Lee was devastated and quite angry when his wife became a believer in their late 20s, and she had been an atheist as well. So he felt like she was, he was losing his wife and that she was losing a grip on reality. So he set out to prove that Christianity was wrong, that it wasn't true. And he thought to himself, if I can prove that the resurrection didn't happen, then I can prove that Christianity isn't true and I can get my wife back. And plus, he just thought it was a noble cause because he was really into reason and science and all of this. So he started digging into the historical documentation and the different accounts of um, the resurrection narrative and trying to find out how the story developed where it came from, because he thought he could debunk it. But the longer he studied it, the more he realized that he was the one that was wrong. And um, after a period of several months and uncovering evidence that he had no idea existed, he actually decided to become a Christian. And he's written some powerful books, including The Case for Christ, The Case for the Resurrection. And when he speaks of the resurrection, um, he talks about the four E's of the resurrection. And I think these are super encouraging us to us as Christians who we want to believe in something um, that is credible. We don't want to be naive. And God gives us enough evidence, um, enough history. Um, and obviously, we trust scripture. But God gives a lot of supporting evidence to show that the resurrection is, in fact, something credible to believe in. So the first of the four E's is the execution. Did Jesus really die? Because some critics of the resurrection claim that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He revived in the tomb. Um, and so the reason why he reappeared to people later on was because he hadn't really been dead. Um, but this idea is not, you know, basically no scholars, whether, whether believers or non-believers, um, hold to this idea. It's historically um, accepted that Jesus was a historical figure who was put to death by the Roman government. Um, the crucifixion was a very cruel death. Uh, there's no record of anyone ever surviving a Roman crucifixion. And even the Journal of the American Medical Association published an article about crucifixion, um, which basically claimed that there was no way that someone could have survived that event without dying. So we know that Jesus did die. Um, the second E is early evidence. So Lee Strobel believed this myth of this myth of the resurrection must have developed over you know a great many years, as often happens in mythology. Um, but he was shocked to discover that there's very early evidence, early accounts of Christ's resurrection. So there's an early Christian creed that Christians started repeating very soon after Christ's death, and it includes four things: it's that Christ was um, that Christ died, that Christ was buried, that Christ was raised, and that Christ appeared. To, um, to different people. And the Christians started repeating this creed very soon after the resurrection. Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 15. 
But even secular historians believe um, because First Corinthians is considered, you know, a, a historically a very credible document, even by secular people. Um, one of the Pauline um, letters that like archaeologists and historians think is particularly credible. Um, so it's dated, I believe, in the four, uh, AD 40 something. But um, is that right? No, it's like early 50s. Yeah, early 50s. So, but when Paul quotes this creed from the early Christians, it's clear that he didn't make the creed up, that he's quoting something from before. And the historians believe that the creed is no later than um, at the latest a few years after the death of Christ, but probably mo most likely it started a few months after the death of Christ. So the narrative of the resurrection hasn't changed. It's the same story. And that's part of why it's a credible account. There's also early evidence um, among writings uh, of historians such as Tacitus and Josephus that described the death of Christ and that described um, the passion of early Christians in sharing the message of the resurrection. The third E is the empty tomb. And, you know, this raises the question, well, was the tomb really empty? How do we know for sure? Well, we know that the tomb was empty because even Jesus's opponents were admitting that it was empty, right? Like the Roman soldiers who were supposed to guard it, you know, on fear of their lives were admitting that it was empty. The Jewish leaders came up with a um, excuse for why it was empty, saying that the disciples had stolen it. Um, but it's clear that there there wasn't um, confusion about whether or not the tomb was empty. And the fourth E is eyewitnesses. So in a court of law, even with one or two eyewitnesses, you know, someone can be incriminated, um, condemned for a crime, exonerated from a crime. If you just have a few witnesses, it makes a story a lot more credible. But the resurrection had many witnesses. Jesus appeared to Mary. Jesus appeared to the disciples. And Paul writes that Jesus appeared to over 500 people. When I think about this massive momentum that the uh, gospel started spreading with, I think that is due in a large part to the fact that so many people had seen Jesus and were so excited about it, right? Like if there had been confusion or conflict among the early believers about whether or not Jesus really had been raised from the dead, um, that would have kind of spoiled the, the movement, um, but there seemed to be such consensus. And I believe that part of that is because of the eyewitnesses. So the, uh, the resurrection of Christ was central in Paul's theology. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For the apostles, the resurrection of Christ was proof to them that the Messiah, that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, and so many of the, the um, apostolic sermons included the message of the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul here starts to get into the meaning of the resurrection. Okay, so we've talked now about the case for the resurrection, but now let's talk about its meaning. Paul says that Christ was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So in Christ's resurrection, there was this massive hope that this was to be um, 
the coming of many, many more resurrections. And this is encouraging to all of us who have lost someone that we love, right? Um, this is my grandpa, and he was one of my favorite people in the whole world. A very, very kind man. And I had the privilege of being with my grandpa um, when he died. I was the only person with him. There were other family members there, but they had stepped out. And I remember I was holding his hand and talking to him. And his breathing was slowing and getting slower. And finally, it stopped. And I remember just thinking to myself, Jesus died for my grandpa. Like, I, I appreciated Jesus in a new way in that moment because I knew that part of the meaning of Christ's death was specifically for my grandpa. And it was so easy for me in that moment to visualize what it would be like for my grandpa to come back to life again. So there's so much comfort in the message of the resurrection. The apostle Paul wrote, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The message of the resurrection is one of comfort. This is a picture of a vigil that was held in Boulder soon after the shooting, which I believe was 12 days ago now. And your heart goes out to these people um, who are experiencing so much grief. And death is hard for everyone, right? Death is hard whether we're believers or not. Um, and God knows we need to grieve whether or not we're, we're believers because God designed our ties with people to be very close. Um, so God has sensitivity to our grief. But it's different to grieve as a believer. It's different to, um, to mourn a loss if you believe that death is all there is than if you believe that you'll see that person again. And through the resurrection, even though we sorrow, we can sorrow as those with hope. God wants to comfort us with the promise of seeing our loved ones again. But the meaning of the resurrection is even bigger than that. Because human beings aren't the only ones who need a resurrection, right? It's all of creation that's suffering. Paul wrote in Romans, for we know that the whole creation, sorry, this is Romans 8, starting verse 19. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All of creation is crying out for something new, for something better. All of creation recognizes that something is wrong. And I, I'm just going to show you a brief series of photos. I asked myself, you know, how could I find a collection of uh, pictures that show creation groaning, that show some of the suffering in our world? And there's way too many types of suffering to talk about, but these are a few that I found. We see creation groaning in the predatory nature of animals, right? When you watch the animal planet and you see the chase, um, this is now something that you know we believe is just part of life, but God never designed for animals to have to die, for animals to have to suffer. 
We see creation groaning sometimes in the way that human beings treat animals. We use animals for a wide variety of ways and they aren't always treated ethically. We see creation groaning in environmental issues. This is a whale that was uh, that um, washed ashore in Spain and they cut it open and found 64 pounds of plastic in this whale. They believe that's why he died. This is a picture of a bird and some of the plastic that it ingested. So the environmental problems cause a lot of suffering to, to um, animals as well as to humans. World hunger is a huge um, source of suffering. This is a little girl um, last year in Yemen. Yemen is still facing a famine. Um, and we know that about, I think, 9% of the world's population is undernourished and 26%, uh, I think, suffers from food insecurity, meaning they're not as undernourished, but they're not always sure where they're going to get their next meal. We see the suffering of our world in um, war zones and refugees and little kids that are growing up in places that aren't safe. We see the suffering of our world in people struggling with disabilities and physical illnesses. And we see the suffering in mental illness, which we've seen a surge in since the pandemic. Um, there were some studies last year of young adults showing that one in four young adults surveyed had had suicidal ideation in the past month. And suicidal ideation is thoughts of suicide, not necessarily an attempt to plan it out, but one in four of over 5,000 people surveyed reported that. Um, the rates of depression and anxiety among American adults have gone way up. And I know, I don't know all of the stats for um, mental health around the world, but mental health was already at a crisis point prior to the pandemic and it's only gotten worse. So in all of these and many other ways, we see creation groaning out, crying for something new, crying for, um, God's resurrection power to do something. Now there's a story in the Bible about someone who was groaning, someone who was crying because they were sad, because they were suffering. And that story is in the resurrection narrative. So we're in John chapter 20, starting in verse 11. And the um, character, the main character in our story is Mary. Mary is someone who had suffered a lot, but who had found a lot of comfort in her relationship with Christ. And when he died, she was absolutely devastated. It says, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus's body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Hmm. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. I can't even imagine like, the massive shift in emotion that she had. <laughs> like, I would have loved to see her face because she's having the one of the most devastating experiences of her life. And in just a moment, she realizes that the source of her grief is gone. 
that the one that she loves is alive and that her reason for crying doesn't actually exist anymore. So for Mary, the resurrection changed everything. And for the disciples, the resurrection changed everything. And like them today, God wants us to find comfort in the truth that Jesus is alive and actively working for our good. Jesus is just as eager to help us um, as he was to help Mary, just as eager to um, reveal himself as he was to the disciples. And that's the comfort of the resurrection. Okay, what's the comfort of the ascension? Well, this seems a little counterintuitive, right? Because we get the whole being comforted because Jesus came, but why are we going to be comforted that he left? And the ascension is a tricky one. A lot of Christians aren't sure about why the ascension needed to happen. Philip Yancey writes, the ascension represents my greatest struggle of faith, not whether it happened, but why? Would it not be better if the ascension had never happened? If Jesus had stayed on earth, he could answer our questions, solve our doubts, and mediate our disputes of doctrine and policy. By ascending, Jesus took the risk of being forgotten. This is a really good question, right? But it's actually one that Jesus addressed directly. Because when he was telling his disciples that he was going to leave, they got sad. And this is how he responded to them. We're in John chapter 16, starting with verse 6. Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus was saying, it's to your advantage that I go away. I'm doing this for you. Well, by nature of the incarnation, Jesus had limited himself to a human form. So there was no way for him to have a uh, omnipresent ministry where he could be meeting the needs of people all around the world. But he knew that he could send the Holy Spirit, who still had the ability to be omnipresent, and that the Holy Spirit would work on behalf of every single person. It's fascinating. The word for helper here is from the Greek word parakletos, and it means an intercessor, consoler, advocate, and comforter. So here again, we see God's desire to comfort. And how is the Holy Spirit going to comfort? Well, Jesus says here, when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He'll Basically, that's saying the Holy Spirit will lead people's minds to understand the gospel, that they're sinful, but that God is righteous and that God offers his righteousness to them. And that because of that, the judgment is good news. We hear the word judgment today and we get scared. But in the Bible, judgment was always for God's saints. Judgment was good news. And as we place our trust in Christ, we can look forward to judgment. So God wants us to find comfort in the Holy Spirit's ministry to us. And what Jesus did when he left was very loving and very strategic. He's just as compassionate. He just had to configure things so that he could help as many people as possible. But there's another comforting thing about the ascension, because Jesus didn't just go up to heaven to drink pina coladas and take a break after what he had done. He actually was going to enter into a new role. So it says in Hebrews chapter four, verses 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So this makes it clear that after Jesus ascended to heaven, he was op- he began operating as our high priest. And we know um, from our study of the sanctuary, he's the high priest of the heavenly sanctuary. We know from the earthly sanctuary that the role of the high priest was to represent the people's needs to God, was to help connect the people to God and to help connect the people with God's forgiveness. And the message of the ascension teaches us that we have an advocate. We have someone representing us in heaven. God wants us to find comfort in Christ's advocacy for us. Of course, God isn't trying to, uh, Jesus isn't trying to convince a selfish God to have mercy on us. It's not, God's just as eager to forgive us as Jesus was, right? But still there's this special role because God is just um, that Jesus is there representing his, um, his sacrifice and saying, yes, you know, my son has sinned. Yes, my daughter has sinned, but my mercy and grace is enough to cover them. And that's the comfort of the ascension. What is the comfort of the recreation? The recreation that we have to look forward to? Well, we know the the resurrection itself was a recreative event. The resurrection of the dead when Jesus comes is going to be a recreative event, but kind of the climax of this um, recreative process is going to be when God makes a new heavens and a new earth. Now, I think it's really appropriate that Easter is in springtime. Um, and spring is a really great time to think about God's recreative power. I read recently, um, I can't even remember who said it. It said, it's spring again. The earth is like a child that knows poems by heart. And I love that. It's like, as you look out, I mean, you guys are a little behind here in Colorado, but in Tennessee, all the buds are out. It's beautiful. And as I go outside and I look around, um, it's like the earth knows this poetry, this music, the earth knows something and it comes out. And that, of course, is because God designed it that way. But I think that this can give us a glimpse into God's desire to recreate the entire world after what could be considered a really long winter. Mm. Martin Luther wrote, Our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. So you guys, I think, are kind of on the brink of spring, and you're about to see some really pretty stuff soon. And make sure when you do that you remember that that is the message of the resurrection. John, um, in vision, saw this new heavens and this new earth he wrote i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and god will uh and then in verse four we're in revelation 21 god will wipe away every tear from their eyes there shall be no more death nor sorrow nor crying there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away and i don't think we spend enough time i know i don't spend enough time really visualizing and thinking about what is the new earth going to look like? Sometimes I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't know if I can handle the whole forever thing. Like, uh, like I'm going to get bored or like, I don't think we're even really capable of grasping um, what we have to look forward to. In fact, uh, the Bible says that we're not capable of it. But I think 
it's a really good idea and spring is the perfect time to think about what is it going to be like, right? What's it going to be like to live with no insecurity? What's it going to be like to never have conflicts with the people that you love? What's it going to be like to not have any financial stress, um, to not have the fear of physical danger or disease? What's it going to be like to not have to worry about aging? What's it going to be like to be reunited with all of our favorite people? What's it going to be like to not have any body image issues or to not be, you know, insecure about the way that you dress or the fact that you don't have the same kind of stuff that somebody else has. I think so often we're like emotionally weighed down in ways we don't even recognize just by nature of living in a sinful world, even on our, even on our best days, really. Um, But we know that in the earth made new that we're going to have a quality of life that is so beautiful and so liberating that we're going to want it to last forever. So God wants us to find comfort in his promise of a future with no tears. So in closing, I have a question for you guys. The same question that Jesus asked Mary. And that's why are you crying? Now, I don't see any big alligator tears coming out of anybody's eyes, but I mean it it more metaphorically. All of us have things in our lives that are causing us pain, that are causing us concern, that we wish were different. All of us are facing adversity in some sort of way. And just like Jesus asked Mary, why are you crying? Because he wanted to connect her to comfort. I believe God asked us the same question. Why are you crying? What's wrong? And whatever that thing is, whether it's a financial struggle or a relational struggle or grief or fear or illness or whatever it is, I hope that today you can be comforted by the message of the gospel and that in the coming weeks, as we enjoy the beauty of spring, we can remember to preach the gospel to ourselves, Mm. right? So Martin Luther said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day, right? And it's also been said, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. So I know I've had times when I've heard a powerful sermon by David Ashick or Mark Finley or someone, and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Um, But the fact is that each one of us preaches to ourselves more than anyone else will, right? Because every day, the way we think about life, the way we think about what's happening, the way we think about God is like a sermon. And so as we um, face just the, the everyday nature of life, I hope we can remember that in those moments where we may feel alone, that we have a God that's with us. In the moments where we might feel ashamed and insecure, that we'll remember our infinite value and how that's communicated in the message of the incarnation and and Christ's death. That in those moments where we feel grief and loss and we miss the people that we've lost, that we will be comforted by the promise of the resurrection. In those moments where we feel overwhelmed by our own bad habits and sins, that we'll remember that Jesus is alive and actively working to help us. And in those moments where we're just suffering and weighed down um, with the rest of creation, 
because it's difficult to live in a sinful world that we'll remember that Jesus is working as hard as he can to make everything new. So I hope that you feel encouraged and comforted today. I hope that you feel a special sense of God's love for you. And I hope that you'll take the time every day to preach the gospel to yourselves. It's just as true every day, but we have to remind ourselves, right? Because we forget.